you have heard of the Manning Cast, well, I would like to welcome you to the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is two of the top brothers in compliance, Nick and Gio Gallo, talking compliance. In this podcast series, we bring them together for a free-form exploration of compliance topics. It's great insights brought to you from the co-CEOs of Ethico. Fun, witty, insightful, with a dash of the two brothers throughout. I know you'll enjoy the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat today because we have the Brothers Gallo live. Double trouble at ECI Impact 2023 for this month's Gallo Cast. Gentlemen, first of all, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having us. This is our first live one. First yeah. live one. This is pretty exciting. Great to be here with you, Tom. And even better, we have no script. So let's rock and roll. Let's do it. Let's go into it. British American Tobacco, $767 million fine selling cigarettes into the one country in the world we all know you don't sell anything into North Korea. Management level approval of the bribery scheme, which was to create a shell company, a alleged shell company, which was run by, of course, British American Tobacco, and that sold the products into North Korea in an attempt to evade sanctions. Not only were they selling products into North Korea, but North Korea was taxing these products and deriving income, which they then used for their own nefarious purposes. So. Let's start with that. How we have a scheme that was literally at the highest levels of the company. How do you think about changing a culture around something like that? I think at that level, you just have to probably change the people. Those people knew, obviously they knew that they shouldn't be selling to North Korea. Yeah, I don't, I, it has to be something drastic for it to be at that level and be that big of a scheme. Yeah, it does. I think any single thing is, going to just be a band-aid on it like the fine is probably not going to get all of the people that were like knowingly involved in it to say all right we're never going to do that again <laughs> if anything you run the risk that they they just get smarter about hiding the grift i think part of the answer to your question tom i think is who's responsible for changing it yeah if you're saying what should the government do to change that company, that's probably one set of enforcement actions and monitoring and stuff like that. If it's the shareholders, then you're probably oust, you probably oust the whole board. Yep. Maybe we get to one of our favorite to topics, clawbacks, and they claw a bunch <laughs> of comp back from them, take all their stock from the board and senior management and maybe some tiers around them. But then if it's the shareholders, then they're going to be like, how much of that, how much of that kind of drastic action is going to mess up? our stock price and stuff like that, which then gets to... It's a bunch of perverse incentives, kind of. Bunch of perverse, perverse incentives, and it also gets to, like, let's just stick with the shareholder thing, because, you know, it could also be done by consumers or by the rank-and-file employees. Hey, we got to change this for our company, but if it's just shareholders, like, those shareholders are going to be balancing... If we just rip out all the management, like, how much stock value right. are we going to lose or how much poorly is the company going to perform for a while... And then they're probably going to be, end up making some compromises of let's, we'll fire one or two people right. just to let people know we're serious and hopefully they don't do it again. But also hopefully we don't have to go so hard that it like really messes up the company. But I think the tough thing is 
for something this entrenched, like major parts of the productive capacity of the company have shown themselves to be of low ethics. So you have to, you have to pull productive capacity out of the company to fix it because you can't just excise the yeah. bad, like the, let's just cut off the bad morals of the international sales manager. You can't do that. Yeah. How did they find out about it? That has not been made clear in any of the settlement documents. So I don't know if it was a, it doesn't appear to be a self-disclosure. If it was, it's not been disclosed. At that point, we don't know yet. Let me turn to another. We're going to have three export controls because they've come out over the past three weeks. Number two is Seagate. Seagate was a tech company, had a $300 million fine for selling products to Huawei after Huawei went on the sanctions list. And the thing that makes Seagate interesting and perhaps a little different is Seagate <coughs> management believed they were legally selling to Huawei. Okay. They had a legal opinion which said they could do this, so they believe they've done nothing wrong. Even more interesting is after the resolution of the fine and penalty, Seagate released a, had a press release that said, we still don't think we did anything wrong and we just settled to get out of it. So here we have someone who thought they were doing nothing wrong, continues to think they're doing nothing wrong, yet paid a $300 million fine, so they must have been doing something wrong. So is that a different calculus to think through change when you didn't think you were doing anything wrong and that got you into trouble, even if you had a legal opinion? Yeah. And now you still don't think you've done anything wrong. Yeah, I think it's absolutely a different calculus. I think it's a bit more, I don't know, surface level or something. Like, you're not getting down to the heart of the managers. At least, let's assume that the fact pattern you presented is what's actually going on. They actually sincerely thought they were doing the right thing, not they had some plausible deniability. But if they're actually trying to do the right thing and they misinterpreted or got bad legal advice or didn't play it properly, I think then it's probably a lot easier to fix and just be like, you need to be more careful with these things or get a second opinion or whatever. Yeah. At least it's not leaders, again, assuming that they're sincere in the statement they made, they're at least not trying to do something wrong or right. they're at least not doing something wrong and they're okay with it like they see themselves as getting caught on a foot foul or something and at least like the why like the core of it is right if that's actually what's going on it seems like they're a little bit even farther down that spectrum where they were trying to make sure they were doing the right thing they went and got that opinion but when you were asking about the calculus are it seemed like you were implying that they must have been doing something wrong for them to have paid the fine and i don't know if that's true i they could have just run the math on like how much is this going to cost to defend and what's that distraction going to be and just said, all right, we'll just go ahead and pay it just to get over it. That's what they said. And also, I think it begs the question of who's deciding whether it was wrong. Obviously, like the courts decide or the, Regulator you know, decide. the regulators decide it's if they don't if they don't think they're doing anything wrong. Obviously, the regulators are like the final arbiter of that. So it doesn't matter if they think they were doing something wrong or not. But then in order to keep, again, assuming that they were actually trying to do the right thing, in order to keep from running afoul of that, then you have to know exactly what the regulators would do. And it seems like they messed up their calculus of this. Yeah. And underneath all of this is they may be playing a PR game of it seems right. better if they yeah, say yeah. this and they don't seem or they're not. They want to seem like they've been trying to do the right thing the whole time. The fact that the regulators brought an action against them, like definitionally says they were doing something wrong. But at least it, it seems like they were trying to figure it out. Yeah. One interesting data point in this case is the following. 
In the original FCPA resource guide released in 2012, the Department of Justice said that compliance professionals need to look at their industry for uh, any evidence of bribery schemes or to see what their competitors may be doing. And most of us interpreted that to say, if you see a company that gets in trouble for some bribery scheme, look internally to see if you've got the same right. problem. But here, the analysis was a little bit different because there were four major sellers to Huawei. When the regulations changed, three of them canceled their contracts. So Seagate looked at that and saw business opportunity. Right. So how do you help counsel a company or a CCO to watch the industry, watch the companies in your industry for any information that might impact them from an ethical or compliance perspective? I think the application of what you're talking about in this situation was really kind of the spirit of the law, right? We're saying, hey, if you should be looking at your counterparts or other kind of competitors to see if they're getting in trouble for something, is that same thing going on? I think it seems like this is on the other side of that line where we're seeing our other competitors doing something that is supposedly right. We should be looking at that as well. So how do you convince them? I think it's a question of like conservatism. At some level, if every of your competitors is canceling a contract with Huawei and you decide not to, there's some risk you're taking. They're just, they're just right? You're at least an outlier. And it seems like they went for a relatively more aggressive approach in getting that legal opinion and trying to figure out a way to justify it. And I'm sure the... I'm sure the logic was, hey, if we do if we do our diligence, we'll at least have a leg to stand on should something come up. Yeah, but it's just so idiosyncratic, right? I don't know the, the, the details at Seagate and what sort of external pressures or board pressures were in place to allow somebody at that margin to push that envelope. I'm sure it was a, a group think kind of a situation. It wasn't probably one person doing it. But it seems like the constant refrain that we're talking about, it just comes down to culture and what are you going to prioritize? And if you're going to prioritize money over values or over conservatism or something like that, then you're going to sometimes wind up in these sort of trade-off situations. Yeah, I think all of these things or so many of the risk management things or the potential for regulatory enforcement or the potential for a lawsuit are around expected value, right? Hey, we're going to do this here. We're going to do this other thing here. We're going to do this in this country. And it'll probably be fine, but in the case that we get sued, we could settle for this. And you're playing all these different branches on the logic tree. And to what you were saying, Nick, it's a question of what is your why? What is the core? I think a lot of times we in ethics and compliance are looking at it as like, how do we like completely stay out of trouble? The board is not making decisions like that. Like right. we talk about this when we're talking about ROI or when you're pitching your budget, there's not a singular goal that the whole company is organizing around usually it's right. balancing a bunch of these different considerations and i think that if you're counsel and you're just trying to tell a company how to make sure that they never get any they never even get close to the line then there's a bunch of things that you're not going to do and then the board's going to say we want to get a little bit more aggressive with it and they're like well, you could do this but there's a one in ten chance that you might get into a lawsuit or whatever and then ultimately i think it fails to be on like the lawyer or the counsel or the ethics and compliance team to be responsible for it. It's the management team that says, hey, you know what? Right. I'm fine with that risk. And I don't know if this is a dirty secret or it's just blatant to everybody, but a lot of times these enforcement actions do not wipe out all of the value that was created by this bad action. Exactly. Like a lot of times it is actually profitable to do some dirty things and then sometimes you get caught for it and sometimes you settle for it and you probably still have more enterprise value, equity value, or cash because 
like the enforcement very rarely finds you more than you made that value it. creation yeah right? a bunch of boards and executives are incentivized to say you know what we'll take a shot on it if we get in trouble then we'll pay something cost so, to do business that's it yeah cost to do business yeah it's, we got to pay tariffs and we're probably going to pay a couple couple hundred million dollars in fines every year but if we don't do that then we're probably never going to be a leader in the industry that could be a narrative that's going around uh, in a board discussion and it's just the nature of it and it gets down to what are you trying to optimize around yep. if you're trying to be the most squeaky clean company that never does anything wrong then there's a bunch of stuff that is probably fine but you're still going to stay away from it and you could be on the full other end of the spectrum and it's a balancing act that i think that's what good counsel or good ethics and compliance team should be doing for the board is helping them figure out what are you trying to solve for and how can i help you get to that right balance because it's not a black and white thing totally. of like how do we never do anything that ever might be interpreted as wrong so the final enforcement action involved microsoft and they got into trouble for the sales model of using distributors. So they sold to distributors who then resold to sanctions party, sanctioned mm. parties. And their distributors were not reporting the true end users of these sales. And what I found interesting, oh, first of all, Microsoft completely remediated their distributor program. They received a very minimal fine and penalty. They were credited with extraordinary remediation. So shout out to Microsoft for their That's remediation. Awesome. Yeah. But... What intrigued me is obviously people know about the high risk nature of commission sales agents yep. and are focused on that. But I'm beginning to wonder, is the distributor model equally risky for a couple of reasons? One, distributors are not passed through. Distributors actually purchase goods, or as we would say, legally, they take title and risk of loss. And it's once they purchase the good, it's not a service, but once they purchase the product, then they can sell at an uplift or they can lose money. But there's usually not visibility to, or there's more difficulty to the visibility of the true end user. So I was wondering if you guys have come across the distributor model or how you would help counsel a company around the risk of that as opposed to the commission sales agent model. I think it, I think you have all the risk of the sales agent model. All those same sort of perverse incentives are in place for the distributor in terms of bribes and all that kind of stuff with none of the controls, not none, but significantly less controls. And that sort of break in the chain of title and risk of loss between the producer and the ultimate end user just allows for a lot of extra movement, a lot of extra degrees of outcome. Yeah, I think increasingly our whole economy is more and more both distributed and interconnected than it was hundreds of years ago, right? Not everything is farm to table, right. just from a, a farm in a mile outside your town. And I think that as that happens, our ethics and compliance programs need to adapt because this thing that, you know, maybe happened less frequently before, or people would just say, yeah, that that's a distributor, that's not you. People are saying, hey, you're part of that. Right. And you're part of this ecosystem. And it's just like our upstream suppliers of we should be buying fair trade things or making sure that we're not getting supplied by someone who is involved in human trafficking or sanctioned or whatever it is. This is a downstream part of your value chain. And increasingly, I think the broad view is you're responsible for the actions that are tied to your products and services. And it's not just within the bounds of your like corporate organization and the people that are on your payroll and things like that. So I think your ethics and compliance program has to adopt or adapt to account for these things that, like you said, Nick, we don't have complete control over them, 
but we're going to bear some responsibility if these goods fall up fall in the wrong hands or these aren't treated properly or whatever and you have to figure out how to like in healthcare you have business associate agreements to make sure your data is handled this way and stuff like that you have to start implementing those agreements and some controls and some testing to have, just like you have vendor management, you should have a similar kind of yep. downstream purchaser management to make sure that those things are done right. Good on Microsoft for making the adjustment right. and seeing it and uh, fixing it. It's maybe anyone's guess how caught off guard they were about that, but obviously in this example, we see that it wasn't being done right, it was brought up, and then it was fixed. And to me, that indicates that it can be run with a tighter ship and a tight control on right. it. And you just have to do that kind of calculus and that, that trade-off management of like, how much effort should we put into managing the risk through these downstream purchasers? Yeah. I'd like to change the focus to conflicts of interest. And conflicts of interest in terms of gifts, travel, and entertainment that a company might engage in with their customers. Certainly, relationship building with your customers can be a critical element of an overall sales strategy and relationship strategy. How do you help a company think through, or how would you help a company think through? Would you suggest a fixed dollar amount of 75, 100, 150, whatever that you might choose? Do you say something like, just don't let it be unseemly? Do you leave it to the discretion of the salesperson? How would you help a CCO type think through what you would use as your basis before you implement? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's such a tough question because it varies so widely. I think saying $25 right. is going to make a lot of sense in some industry that has like low ticket items. But I don't know if you're in like a high cost location where coffee and croissants cost more than $25, then that doesn't really fit. And then also like how strict you define it really depends on what your exposure is and who you're relying on for it, right? If you have 20,000 salespeople around the world, while I might prefer to have a don't let it be unseemly and make sure it's clean type of policy, that's probably not good enough guidance to give to 20,000 people yeah, right. that, have, that don't really know all of these risks and you have to get more specific. I think that this is where a good ethics and compliance team can really be valuable because going the kind of belt and suspenders, okay, let's lock it down and every anyone who spends more than $10 needs approval before they do it is not going to be scalable and it's just going to get skirted. And it takes some of that intelligence and that probably engagement and talking to people in the field and understanding where there are exceptions to build a rule or a set of principles and policies to do it. I think that there are some industries where it's probably pretty easy and just, hey, you know what, you guys got $100 to, you can take someone out to lunch, but not to dinner or whatever. And some other industries, you probably need different things if there's international travel involved or whatever. And I think that's part of the reason why a good ethics and compliance team that understands their company yep. and their stakeholders and the things that people are balancing to achieve their own goals, as well as they understand the regulators and the legislation and the guidance is really critical. And I think increasingly, and this gives me hope, leaders and executives and boards are realizing that in order to balance these things, you need a good ethics and compliance team to figure out just that question, how specific do you get or how much you be involved? And you know, that, that's why great ENC teams add so much value. I think also they have to, you said you, you have to understand what's going on on the front line so you're not doing that in a vacuum. I think having conversations with those sales leaders in, in your example 
and saying, hey, here's the problem. How do you think we should solve it and collaborate on that? You're going to start to get some real insights into the way business is actually done and figure out what's reasonable because that's relative to Geo's point. It's relative to the industry and how business is done and how deals get done and all that kind of stuff. And I think those sort of frontline insights or like without those frontline insights, the odds of you getting it right in a vacuum are going to be basically zero. Earlier in the podcast, Nick, you used the term groupthink. I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on groupthink and how that can drive a company to make decisions that are either unethical, against their values, or perhaps even illegal. Yeah, groupthink is this concept where a bad idea in a room of people can take hold and you walk out of a brainstorming session with this course of action that everybody is super jazzed by but ends up being like a really terrible idea. So it makes it really important to have a true idea meritocracy in this sort of culture of debate so that you don't fall into groupthink because it's a it's an absolute killer. What's a good example of groupthink? I don't know, like Coke, like when Coke came out with Coke or something. New, you know? new Coke? New Coke, yeah. yeah. New Coke might be like a groupthink example. Or Clear Pepsi. Clear Pepsi, kind of like Clear Pepsi. Okay. So maybe I was. <laughs> I did not like New Coke. No, yeah. that was brutal. But somebody came up with that idea and it took, think of the movement that had to happen within the organization to launch something like that. There was a lot of people buying into that idea that ended up being, they were clearly very wrong about that idea. Yeah, it was yeah. not just one guy printing out a uh, like a promotion sign and putting it in a gas station. There's yeah. just like millions of dollars put behind this thing. And there are obviously a bunch of people getting into it and being like, oh, this is gonna be great. Uh, yeah, did you hear what they were talking about? That's gonna be awesome. And it was like, there had to be some people along the line who were like, this is probably gonna be bad. This tastes and they, like crap, yeah. And they didn't bring it up. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a hairbrain it's like a harebrained scheme with a bunch of people involved. Yeah, and there, I think there's something about the power of crowds that enables people or gets them comfortable suppressing their objections or skipping over concerns that they bring up and saying, Okay, I guess we're going here and I think that this is in some ways like the other side of the same coin as this concept called the road to Abilene. Mm -hmm. If you guys don't know this, I don't know, it's like a, a fable. Yeah, thing. It's like a country western song. <laughs> Probably would be a good country western song. It's this, the road to Abilene is this concept of a bunch of people get in a car and they say, where should we go to lunch? And they end up heading toward this terrible place that no single person in the car wants to go to, but they're on the road to Abilene and saying, wait, why are we going here? Didn't you want to go? And someone's like, no, I only wanted to go there because I thought you wanted to go. And everyone's, we're heading toward this destination yeah. that nobody wants to go to. And I think that groupthink is the inverse of that, where right. we're heading toward a bad destination that everyone thinks or everyone says that they want to go to. to, go to yeah. yeah, you know, I think that this is like the power of crowds and we're social animals and we're inclined to maybe not go against the grain or adopt something because uh, a bunch of people are doing it. One of my favorite examples of groupthink is if you were here in Jersey City, right outside New York, and I think this works well in a city. If you're walking through a city and no one really knows each other, and you stop by a building and just look up, within 30 seconds, there are gonna be four or five other people yeah. just looking up and just being like, he's doing it, there's probably something up there. And that's the thing, like something gets some momentum and then the rest of the group kind of goes along with it. And the scary thing is, you looking up at a building and kind of tricking some other people to do it is not that harmful a board or a whole marketing team making a decision that's going to reconfigure people's jobs in a bad direction is really driven by the same kind of behavioral psychology right. and can have a much more damaging impact. I'd like to change the topic a little bit. Nick, in your keynote yesterday, you gave an example from your private equity days about looking at a potential acquisition and thinking the culture fit wasn't right. Yeah. The Department of Justice has made clear that pre-acquisition due diligence from the compliance perspective 
is a requirement, but that's not what I heard you talk about yesterday. You weren't talking about compliance. You were talking about culture. How should a company think through, or how would you counsel a company even to think through the culture of a proposed acquisition target? For me, for me and Geo, we came up with this, this sort of partnership or acquisition model. And if you picture a pyramid with three tiers on it, you have to get all three of those tiers flashing green to get a good deal done. And the top tier is the dollars, the dollars and cents, that's the capstone. The middle tier is the synergies. And that's really what most people think about. Most people are just looking at what are the synergies I'm able to model out in the spreadsheet? What plants will we get to shut down? What teams will we be able to fire? What extra bottom line? What is gonna be the nature of our one plus one equaling three or four or something like that? Yeah, or how can our marketing be more efficient or we can get some- Cross-sell or something. We can do cross-sell sales or we can buy more efficiently because we're buying in bigger quantities. All of those things that when we combine these, then, you know, things are gonna be better. Yeah, most people focus primarily on synergies and the capstone, which is the dollars and cents. Can we make, make this market happen? We have a tier on the bottom of that, which is our most important tier, that if we can't get past that, we don't even consider the synergies or the dollars and cents. And that is, we would call it ethos, and it's culture, and it's that kind of stuff. And so the way we look at it is, if if you have a company, and we have a company, and it wouldn't make sense for us to go together, but you look at your God is money, and we think our people are our greatest assets, those cultures are not just going to meld. You know what I'm saying? They're not gonna, they're not gonna fit together. You don't build, a great company, you you build a Lego tower, you stack them together. There are a bunch of people and people need to engage with their discretionary effort and so they have to follow something. And if those cultures don't meld and you don't bring those folks together, there's gonna be that mixing of oil and water. So what I would say is that's the most important piece of a deal. If those ethos, if those respective ethos can connect and we look at the world the same way and we have the same sort of vision for what the future looks like, then there's a lot of room to deal with all the chaos that comes with with an integration because it's always chaotic, right? But at least you have like parts that you're putting together. I think once that's established, then all that all those other layers of technical diligence and legal diligence and compliance, you know, marketing diligence, all that kind of stuff, all those things there's just like a lot more room if that's established. If you're just looking at whether this acquisition is going to work by looking at those sort of technical di- those technical diligence items and you're not even looking and considering that cultural piece it's really a lot more of a crapshoot than people like treat it. You know what I'm saying? Um, That story that I talked about yesterday was part of this massive roll up and there was like almost no consideration paid for culture. And there was like massive leadership issues and there was tons of churn. It was like, there was no leader of the organization. There was no sort of collective vision. And so it was just like a stew. It was a stew of companies and it's taken a really long time to get that company back on track and through profitability and stuff like that. Because I would attribute it primarily to this appetite for acquisition and this sort of disrespect or discounting of the importance of of these respective little cultures. Yeah, and if you're mixing a bunch of ingredients together, you do it wrong and your stew can be sewage. (laughs) But I think the tough thing about this, Tom, is that from an ENC perspective, it's not as easy to script evaluating how cultures are going to match. You can't say, as long as their training completion rate is within 5% of yours, or make sure they at least have a two-page policy on this, you have to be a bit of a detective. You have to be a bit of a Sherlock and say, okay, they have these policies and here's how people talk about them. And here's, here's what has been reported to their hotline or here's how the sales team talks about their goals or what they did in the past few quarters when they were behind goal that the culture is not as easy 
from like a risk and combination perspective where you can apply a common rubric across different organizations, I think there's probably a list of things that you can include on the things that you do discovery about and you want to learn about their policies and their management and how, how, how comfortable employees are. There are a bunch of things that can inform that, but I think that the challenge is that it's, it can be hard right. to teach somebody how to evaluate a culture, you have to just get in and figure it out. Yeah, you have to get in, you have to talk to a bunch of people, you have to hear how people talk about it. It's very subjective, It's to your point, it's not just going down like a risk assessment. Yeah. There's inherent subjectivity to it, but you can feel it. You can feel, you can hear how people talk about it. You can see how important those values are for the organization. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think part of the tough thing is that if you're doing a combination, a merger or acquisition, something like that, and you're not just evaluating, quote unquote, how good the culture is at the other company or how strong it is, you're doing this matching exercise of how well does it match and complement your kind of host home company. Um, and that takes, I think, a great place to start is to understand your company's own culture and then compare that to how things are at the target because that's really the big question is how are these things matched? If they're both young and fast moving and innovative and fine dealing with change, then maybe that's fine. Yeah. Or if they're both very well established and very methodical, you know, like they, they need to match, not necessarily like just determining if they're good and bad. There's these two approaches to blending cultures and it's the Babylonian approach and the Persian approach. So what, ba what the Babylonians would do when they would take over another country or whatever, is they would just take everybody into the Babylonian Empire, essentially, and say, you're Babylonians now. Um, so they would fully, like, absorb all of these different people. And they the, would tell them what they should be. Like, yeah, they would tell them what they should be. Take away all their relics. And That's right. You're Babylonian now. Persians, on the other hand, were, hey, you can stay your culture, and we're going to be this sort of confederation. That's an approach that allowed for these individual cultures to be preserved in that sort of massive empire. And I think either one of those approaches could work in theory in terms of applying that to acquisitions and stuff like that. I think it's a question of the vision of what the future empire, quote unquote, looks like and like how integrated those different people groups need to be. If they can be a bunch of disparate things, it's probably fine and less important. And I think it's always going to be important to some level, but I'm just saying it, it might be less critical to the extent that like you put two different sort of marketing teams together. You know what I'm saying? If they can maintain those identities. But as they get more, more integrated, it gets increasingly more important in my mind and I've just seen it firsthand how it could be just like a total botch job by just like ignoring it. Yeah, there's a question of conformity and how much you want to force homogeneity across the different subcultures. Yeah. That can be different across divisions, right? Maybe your finance teams need to be all running the exact same stuff and you could have different marketing teams playing different sub brands or something like that, but those are part of the things you have to decide and on. And one other point, I don't wanna convey that I think that that bottom tier, that ethos overlap needs to be monolithic and it needs to be absolutely identical because it's never going to be. Even in every company has, it's just a bunch of collections of people and those little groups of people form little sub, mini subcultures and those form this sort of broader culture. And I think it's helped, we have, I don't know, five or six different teams on our growth force. Although our, our growth force has a culture for sure, our company has a culture, but like those individual teams have their own individual cultures as well. And they, those can be resonant and distinct. They do, those don't all need to be the exact same note. Yep. Gentlemen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you and I hope we can record a session at Compliance Week. That's great. It's been great spending time with great. you and yeah. great to see you in person, Tom. Thanks for tuning in to GalloCast. See you guys next time. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the GalloCast. I hope you'll join Nick and I in January where we get back together for another edition. 
been a ton of fun bringing this podcast series to you. It's uh, really more than uh, fun than a barrel of monkeys recording it with these guys. They're so great together. And I hope you get a sense of uh, what they're like from this podcast. If you'd like to see the video version of this, check out my YouTube channel, the Compliance Podcast Network, under the podcast Gallocast on YouTube. I hope you will have a very safe and joyous holiday season and new year. We will look forward to visiting you with you in 2023. If you haven't done so, I would appreciate it if you could rate and review this podcast on uh, iTunes. It would greatly help our rankings and get out the word about the uh, Gallocast beyond the compliance community. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you in 2023.